0: Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39, considering the death of Jesus and the last moments of the cross, let's turn to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help in understanding and applying this text to our hearts. Let these words from your mouth be acceptable for us and for our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. He who has ears to hear, he must hear. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, sabachthani," which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, He is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Cries for help terrify their hearers. They cause those with an earshot to jump to action. These cries can come from any number of poor souls, they might come from a child who has fallen off a very high play area. They might seep out of the mouth of someone who is choking on food. They might be the groans of a soldier who's been shot in the stomach. Whatever their source, whatever their source is, the cry demands dropping everything and running quickly to action. It would be odd for a parent, wouldn't it? Without assessing the situation first, to say simply to his fallen child, just rub some dirt on it. It would be unthinkable, would it not, for a friend to do nothing for his choking buddy. Say, I'm here for moral support, I got you. You can do this on your own. It would be unimaginable, would it not, for the medic to ignore the soldier who's bleeding out. be unthinkable indeed. But not out of the realm of redemptive possibilities or salvation scenarios. In this psalm text, we hear a loud cry uttered in darkness. And how could this cry not be heard? It came from the Son of God. But there's no returning voice from above. There's no spirit descending as a dove. Just Silence. Unthinkable, isn't it? But thank God for it. The forsaken Jesus, the Christ, is truly the Son of God. And to see the cry the Messiah in its proper context, we must see it uttered in darkness. Read again verse 33 with me. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Mark intends for us to see the larger redemptive context in this language. At the sixth hour, at 12 o'clock, at high noon, at the brightest point in the day, the light fades to dark. And you will remember, if you, if you know the story of the plagues and God's delivering Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians, you remember that when the Lord God Almighty was demonstrating to, to the Egyptians and to Israel that he and he alone is God... He did so by plaguing Egypt with utter darkness. When Moses stretched out his hand, all of Egypt felt the darkness, felt it in their bones. They couldn't see around them. God, through this plague, was withdrawing his provisions. He was replacing these provisions with judgment upon Egypt. The ninth plague that had lasted three days in Egypt, now, you could say, in a sense, covers Israel for three hours until the ninth hour. And Amos 8, 9, which we read earlier, speaks of the bitter day for Israel. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This darkness that covered Calvary at noonday was a threefold sign of darkness judgment it signified the father's opposition to sin through this darkness just like the father was opposed to the sin of the egyptians and covered them now we see through this darkness the father is against all that is unholy all that is wicked all that is sinful as sin is, is housed in perpetual darkness, the Father turns His face away. There is no light of His countenance upon the land. He cannot look favorably upon the sin of the people. The Father also signified His judgment against Israel that had crucified the perfect, spotless Son of God, the true Israel. You'll remember that Jesus spoke against Israel, against Mainly the Jewish authorities. The son came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected the son. And so all of Mark 13 speaks of the coming judgment of Israel upon the temple. And that would be a a day of darkness as well. We see that, we see a taste of that at the cross with darkened skies. Calvin says, they were thus justly deprived of the light of salvation as God's wrath was seen upon them. It was the sons of Israel that put Christ on the cross. And so the father is signifying his opposition, his judgment on them that crucified the Lord of glory. The father shows his wrath against evil upon the anointed, upon his true son. Takes the wrath his wrath, and pours it out upon the Son. There is, then, that ultimate judgment against sin. As the sun is at its brightest, it darkens and gives way for the death of the Son. Now, we see verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemis sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, we come to one of the more challenging portions of Scripture, and we need to do justice to this cry of justice. And we ask, did the Father forsake the Son? Well, no, and yes. No, He didn't. But also, yes, He did. This is not speak, of course. This is not using contradictory language, per se, because the whole Bible has something to say about the the various aspects in which the father did not forsake the son and those in which he did forsake the son we must take these this cry in the overall biblical context and i've noted given you in your notes six spaces for what this does not mean when jesus says my god my god why have you forsaken me the first that this does not mean is that there was a rupture in the trinity that there was somehow a breakdown in the very trinity itself the eternal trinity father son and spirit somehow divided somehow broken to pieces somehow being torn asunder that cannot be because if that were so then the trinity is not god the god is god is simple and perfect and immutable there was no ripping apart of the trinity at the cross here this also does not mean the loss of sonship. It does not mean that the sun stops being the sun for these few hours. The sun remains the sun, always and forever, and yes, even on the cross. When he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He is still the sun. If he could stop being the sun, he would stop being God, which is a divine impossibility. The son always remains the son. The father did not stop being the son's father. Jesus even says on the cross, my God. He claims God as his own, my God. At the end, he says, into your hands, father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. I commit my spirit into your hands, father. You are my father. You've always been my father. The son on the cross claims the father as his father. And it's not that at the cross and the Father has disowned the Son, that there is somehow this division between Father and Son, that the Son says, you're my Father, and the Father says, you're not my Son. For these brief moments, for these few hours, you're not my Son. No. He is eternally the Son. This also does not mean that there is a loss in the holiness of the Son. The Son has remained the spotless, righteous Undefiled Lamb of God. Although he took sin upon himself, he knew no sin. He was spotless, though he took upon himself all the blemishes of the elect. He was righteous, though he took upon himself all of the unrighteousness of the elect. He remained undefiled, though he took upon himself all of the defilements of the elect. If the Son stopped being holy, if he stopped being undefiled, if he stopped being righteous, if he stopped being spotless, then this sacrifice would do him, would do us, no good. So it does not mean the Son has lost his holiness. It does not mean a rupture of the two natures of Christ. Remember, Jesus is unique in that he is one person with two natures. He is truly God and truly man. And some will say, well, he is forsaken as man, but not as God. The father forsakes the son as a man, but the father can't forsake the son as God. But that's then dividing, that's breaking the personhood of Christ. Truly God and truly man. Everything that Jesus does, he does as the one person Jesus. There's no rupture of the two natures because Jesus as that sacrifice is doing so simultaneously as divine and human so for the father to accept the son's sacrifice he is accepting the son as god and as human after all he had to become a human for us and he had to bear our sin as god as well for no human can rightly bear the burden of the wrath of the father it also does not mean a complete abandonment the father did not utterly reject the son here at the cross several scriptures bear this out psalm 16 the father says that he would not abandon the son to sheol he would not allow the son to see corruption Remember the son's words to his disciples in John 16, verse 32. He says, all of you disciples, you're going to leave me. You're going to scatter. But there's one who will not leave me. And it is the father. He will not leave me. He will be with me every step of the way to the cross. Every moment on the cross. Francis Turretin says, the soul of the Christ was in the hand of the father. And so the son yields his spirit to the father into his arms, and the father heartily embraces his well-pleasing son who had never sinned. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, it says that the father heard the son's loud cries. Why? Because of the son's reverence. The father had to hear the son's cries. The, The son is too perfect, too reverential, too awestruck by the father to in love with the father to be utterly rejected for his cries not to be heard. No, the father heard the son's cries. And even Psalm 22, verse 24, is very helpful in understanding what's going on here. When when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22. He does not, through that quoting, want us just to look at verse 1. He wants us to look at verse 1, but Jesus never takes a verse out of context. See, he's drawing our attention, not just to that verse, but to the entire psalm. And in verse 24, it says that he has not hidden his face from him, but heard when he cried to him. The father hears the son when the son cries with his loud cry. Joel Beeking, Paul Smalley, in their book on uh, speaking about this matter, says, God did not reject his son, but poured out upon him the rejection that we deserve. God did not reject his son, but poured out upon him the rejection that we deserve. The son is taking upon that rejection doesn't mean, fifth, that there is some fatherly hatred for the son. This is connected to some of the earlier points. The father was not personally angry with his beloved son. Like a father would be to his wayward child. Yes, wrath was directed to the son. And praise be to the son that it was so directed. But it was not at the Son, for the Son. It was not because the Son had done anything wrong. The Father never was angry with the Son as the Son. How could he be? How could the Father be angry at his Son, who always does the will of the Father, who is well-beloved at baptism, at the cross, who goes through the Garden of Gethsemane, There is only one lawful. I mean, according to the Mosaic law, there's only one lawful response from the Father, and it is to receive, it is to accept the faithful Son, his, Himself, as a sacrifice. The Father sees the Son, hears the Son, and accepts the Son as a sacrifice. All of this is is to point out the loving and harmonious work of salvation that is wrought by the Trinity. The Father and the Son had agreed upon this. The Spirit agreed with the Father and the Son from before the foundation of the world. And the Son was fixed on this. So you see all persons of the Trinity intimately involved right here at the cross to bring about salvation for the many but it does mean forsaken in some other senses. How could it not? After all, Jesus does say forsaken. We need to take him at his word. Of course we do. So there are four ways that this means that he was forsaken. Four senses. The first is that as the Messiah, he bore all of the soulish anguish and the torments that come with being on the cross, on account of sin and the curse that is due sin. John Flavel, the Puritan, says he felt in his inner man the exquisite torments and inexpressible anguish of the wrath of God. You cannot imagine, thanks be to Christ, you cannot imagine the exquisite torments that the Son experienced in his soul. It was, there wasn't this distance, there's this, you know, passivity here he bore not just externally but internally the torments a soul in anguish even as jesus says in in john 12 now my soul is troubled and what shall i say father deliver me from this hour calvin says he suffered excruciating agony of conscience as if he had been forsaken excruciating agony literally excruciating from the cross, the agony that attends the cross itself, Christ endured the most grievous torments in his soul because of the crushing weight of the Father's wrath. He felt the soul quaking burden of divine vengeance. Because of the wrath the Father was being spent upon the Son. The second thing it means is that as the new Adam He is viewed as a covenant breaker. Though he does not break the covenant, he is viewed as a covenant breaker. And we're told in Scripture that God forsakes all those who forsake his covenant, all those who, by forsaking his covenant, provoke him to wrath. And as the new Adam, representing us, Jesus takes upon himself that covenantal infidelity, that covenantal faithlessness. He takes that upon himself which is the collection of of all of our faithlessnesses, all of our covenantal infidelity. For when have we ever kept the covenant? And so the Father pours divine wrath on the Son for covenant breakers. Christ becomes a curse for us. And as a curse, he takes on the righteous condemnation due the curse. The Father was present at the cross. But he is present in judgment. Oh, the father hears the loud cries of the son. The father is right there in judgment against the sins of the elect. Against the sins of those that the father would give to the son. Of those for whom the son died. Of those in whom the spirit would indwell. Make an application of the son's work on the cross. He was present judge. Calvin says, Christ was never rejected by God his Father. When our Lord Jesus was in the direst distress as if God had cut him off from all hope of life, it was because he was representing us, bearing the curse of the sins which separated us from God. He had to endure awful conflicts as if abandoned. Christ represented us as, as, as someone, as the new Adam, we need a new head. We were in the first Adam breaking the covenant. And so we needed someone to walk what to walk where the old Adam had failed. To be tempted in every way but without sin. And so we did. And he also took on the penalty that is due us because of our former union with Adam. But it does mean thirdly is that he is forsaken as separated from the graciousness and sweet favor of God. John Flavel says that he removed the father removed his sweet manifestations from the son for a time. There was a moment on the cross those hours where the son did not experience that sweet Fellowship that he had with the Father from all eternity and that went with the Son when the Son was walking this road of humiliation. The Son did not have that at the cross. Those manifestations of sweetness were denied the Son at that time because they were being replaced with the unmitigated wrath of the Father. Gerhardus Voss says the son's consciousness momentarily missed an awareness of divine love. The son did not feel the father's love. Though he knew, because he knew Psalm 22, and he knew other passages of scripture, Psalm 16, he knew the father still loved him. It wasn't that the father stopped loving the son. Christ, Calvin says, experienced all the signs which God shows towards sinners when he is wrathful with them and punishes them. And because of this, Calvin says, Jesus shrank from death. What anguish of soul, what awfulness of spirit for the son to, to not know for that time the sweetness of the presence of the Father. Something he's known for all eternity. And fourthly, it means he has forsaken in the sense of being left to die. The father did not spare his son. He did not, hearing the cries, say, Fine, here's a miracle, one final miracle, and you don't have to die. The father loves the son, and so he lets the son die. The father loves those who are in Christ, and so he lets the son die. He does not spare his son, and he who did not spare the son, how will he not also with the son give us all things, Paul says in Romans 8. What will be the reality in your case? I don't mean, of course, that it can be whatever. I mean that what you truly choose will have real life or real death consequences. These truly horrifying realities, and as you reflect on these, you must be horrified. If you are not, then you're not properly reflecting on what is going on at the cross. These truly horrifying realities become the meat and drink for all of those who are outside of Christ. The meat for those without Christ is full of maggots and worms that do not die, which all the wicked will be forced to eat. The drink for all who are without Christ is the wrath of God liquidized, poured into all the pores of body and soul, and will keep them alive only to be in perpetual death. If you die without Christ, you die eternally absent of his blessings, of his beauty, of his grace. You die completely abandoned in the the abyss with no one to lend you a hand to pull you out. You will remain in darkness where the Son of Righteousness will forever withhold his light. And So be terrified now. Tremble now, lest the Son terrify you in his wrath and speak judgment in his fury. Wake up to the horrors of your sin, the horrific affront your souls have caused against the holiness, the law of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Don't be only horrified, but flee. Flee to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world before he becomes to you the Lamb in whose presence you are tormented forever and ever, world without end. These truly horrifying realities are those from which the Son of God has graciously saved us. He has gone to hell and back for our salvation. He has taken upon himself the torments of hell for us. As truly the Son of God, he then is truly our sympathetic high priest who did not let us taste hell. Though hell is what we deserve... The Son will spare us that eternal torment and take upon himself that anguish, that penalty, unimaginable penalty, but perfectly just. And in these ways, the experience of Christ resonates with ours to some degree. Of course, not not fully. I'm not saying that the Son didn't suffer enough to compare to your suffering. I mean the exact opposite. That you've not suffered enough. That your suffering cannot compare to what the Son went through on the cross. Whatever grief, whatever loss, whatever rejection or withdrawal we feel does not compare to what the Son experienced. And we should be thankful to Him for that. But this also means at whatever loss, grief, rejection, withdrawal you do feel, you have a sympathetic high priest for it. You have someone who knows more than just a little. For you, it was its light and momentary affliction. But the son knew the heavy and eternally enduring wrath of the father. On the cross, And so be comforted, dear ones. Be comforted by the Son who is your Savior when your soul is in anguish. Whatever, is, whatever the source of the anguish, you always have someone who knows anguish better than you do. So you always have someone you can go to that your soul would be contented, that your soul would be satisfied, that your soul would be comforted from the Father of comfort, the Father of mercies. Be comforted by the Son, who is your Messiah, when you break the covenant. Even in this new covenant in which we live, you break the covenant. Not one day have we obeyed God perfectly in thought, word, or deed. And so every day we should be confessing our sins. And when you break the covenant, you have your new Adam. You have the Messiah, who faithfully fulfilled the entire covenant. And simply says... Come to me, confess your sins, and I will forgive you. Be comforted by God's true Son when you miss God's sweet favor because of your sin. There are times in the Christian life when we do not experience the sweetness of the fellowship that attends the presence of God, and that's because of our sin. Sometimes we do things that are quite heinous. And there is then that that loss of, in the experience, there's a loss of sweet fellowship. That's the Father's way of saying, you've done something wrong. Seek me, and you'll be found, and I'll be found. And when that happens, we yearn for that sweet fellowship with God. And we can be comforted by it as we prayerfully consider his word as we find forgiveness for our sins and be comforted by your high priest when the Father will let you die into his arms. You will die. And that's the Father's way of finally ushering you into his sweet presence. It's no longer. No no longer for you has that sting It no longer carries with it the curse. It is the way that God ushers you into his presence, and he will let you die for your good. That you might eternally be with Father, Son, and Spirit, undefiled, uncorrupted, no longer sinning, with every tear wiped away. Such comfort we see from what Christ has done on the cross for us. We turn to verse 38. It says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So the Father points us to this comfort with the torn veil, with this torn temple. This word for torn in two was only used one other time in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark is telling us something here. It was used previously at the baptism of Jesus. You'll remember that the heavens opened up and were torn and God's spirit descended on Jesus as a dove. The father at that time approved of the son and he appointed his son at the son's baptism. He appointed him for a life of ministry culminating in the death and resurrection of the son. Ministry for the salvation of the many. And now at the crucifixion, the father approves of the son's work on the cross. The son's perfect work of death, which he calls in Mark 10, a baptism. With the temple veil torn, then, this father speaks of the success of the son. The son did it. He accomplished my will. He did everything I sent him to do. As God had earlier ripped open the creation to declare his love and pleasure in the Son. So now Christ's death tore open full access to his Father through his law-abiding death. This then means adjudication. It means judgment. God, as we said earlier, judges the world for their heinous sins. And so the Father now is announcing to everyone that justice has been met, that his wrath has been satisfied, that the penalty has been paid, and the curse has been lifted, praise be to the Lord. So there's judgment, final, perfect execution of judgment. And there's also access or salvation. This breaking of the veil means access for you and me. As Paul says in Hebrews 10, that through the curtain, we have access to the Lord. And so we sing, To God be the glory of great things He has done. So love to the world, that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate, that we may go in. That we who are in Christ now may go into the heavenly throne room and have perfect access because of the perfect life and mediation of the Son. Is that the song of your heart? I pray that it is. But the question Remains, what will you do with this judgment now averted? What will you do with this access now granted? Will you, as we're told, draw near with confidence? Will you enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus? By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is His flesh? Will you draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with your bodies washed with pure water? Will you draw near? You do that by reading his word. You do that by praying and experiencing that sweet fellowship in prayer. You do that here at worship. You do that when we take the Lord's Supper. You draw near and you eat of Christ by faith. The doors to the heavenly throne room are open. Shall we draw near? Shall we come in? For those who are, who are not Christians at this point, you must hear this as a call from Christ to come, to take upon yourself his yoke, to come and to find rest in him, in him alone. Draw near to the Son, and he will not cast you out. But this is also a word for, for those who are really Christians, who truly are in Christ, but because of their own sin will pull away from grace. Will will think themselves unworthy of grace. Of course, you're unworthy of grace. Nevertheless, Christ has, has done a fine work. And he says, use my work to come to the Father. To find that grace, to find that mercy time of need, which is now and always, will you draw near? Judgment has been executed against sin. The judge of all the earth has made his ruling and has sentenced death to death. He has condemned sin to Sheol. Shall we, as Calvin calls us to do, then humble ourselves, finding nothing in ourselves but poverty and shame, that God may pour upon us the treasures of his mercy? That's the contrite spirit that we are to have. I'm utterly poor, impoverished of any spiritual good, and I depend upon the Son. I'm shameful. But because of the Son, that condemnation, that shame has been taken. He bore my shame. He took upon himself the mockery of the world and the wrath of the Father. And now I get to draw near. Let us humble ourselves And draw near to the Lord in prayer, in his word, in worship. And finally we see in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So with the Christ having breathed his last, now the centurion breathes the first post-mortem confession of the identity of Jesus. Perhaps see even initial fruit the death of Christ. With this confession from the centurion, Mark takes us back all the way to the beginning. What does a good author, good speaker do to carry his point across, to drill it into his hearers' minds? Well, he tells you what he's going to tell you. That's the first thing. Second thing is, he tells you it. The third thing is, he tells you what he told you. Repetition. Well, this phrase, the Son of God, surprise, surprise, is used at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Only one other time. In Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Hear Mark. He told you what He's going to tell you. And if you missed it, don't worry. Nine verses later, in Mark 1.10, you have at the baptism of Christ... God saying, you are my son. The father declares the sonship of Jesus. And throughout the whole gospel of Mark, Mark shows you the identity of Jesus as the son of God through the son's life and then ultimately through his death. And the, the center of the gospel of Mark could be seen in, in Mark eight twenty nine, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ. That's the turning point from the, the two halves of the gospel of Mark. But Mark doesn't let up. He keeps showing you the sonship of Jesus through the son's transfiguration, through the son's teaching, through the son's miracles, through the son's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, through the son's prophetic pronouncements upon Israel, and through the son's giving himself over to sinners. Here, Mark. He told you what he said he would tell you. And now, to close a loop on the Christ, the centurion confesses, truly, he was the Son of God. The confession of Jesus as the Christ, God's true Son, was uttered at the first by the lips of a Jew, and then from the mouth of a Gentile at the last. Here, he told you what he told you. Do you see what Mark has done? through this inspired genius of holy writing. The entire book of Mark is a sandwich. And you might have gotten tired of hearing Mark and sandwich, Mark and sandwich. The entire book's a sandwich. The Lord works in great ways. Jesus is the Son of God for Jew and Gentile, for all who confess with faith Jesus Christ. This man's confession is our confession. It ought to be our confession. Did the centurion confess these words with true faith? I don't know. I hope so. It would be great to see him in heaven. Nevertheless, these words we must heartily and with faith confess. And if you miss this, then you miss the entire point of the Gospel of Mark. You miss his whole reason for writing these 16 chapters. Mark is no deconstructionist. He does not allow you to play fast and loose with his writings. He doesn't say, well, interpret it however you want to. It's up to you. No. If you miss this, you've wasted the last 62 sermons in these last 15 chapters of Mark. Assuming you were here for all 62 sermons. Now, that's a lot of time to hear the gospel and to miss it. To hear the gospel and to ignore it. To hear the gospel and reject it, or positively, it's a lot of time, to grow in the gospel. Mark is saying, "I, I have written this so that you will see Jesus as the Messiah, that you will see Jesus as the true king, that you will see him as truly the Son of God. Will you believe it, Mark is asking? Will you confess it? But not only will you confess it, but will you live that confession? Remember, Marcus writing to Christians who are persecuted in Rome. It is primarily for Christians. And we know the struggle. We know what it's like to be looked down upon, for the world to hate us. And so that temptation to reject this confession, to say, No, I no longer confess it. That is real and present. And Marcus saying, Will you practice this confession in the face of danger? Although Mark does not conclude his gospel just yet, he leaves us with this book of a sandwich. Will we eat it? Will we heartily take this messianic Markan sandwich into our bodies, into our souls? Shall we eat him who is the living bread? Shall we drink him the living water who drank death for us? It will make all the difference in the world, Indeed, all the difference for heaven. Praise be to Jesus, the Christ, the Lord's anointed, truly the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Now that we have heard your word, O Father, let the words, the thoughts, the deeds of our mouths, minds, and hands, and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen.